The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, president and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Joining me on today's panel to talk about the changes in the policies of the current administration are my two esteemed colleagues, Joel Janovich, who's uh, been at the firm about a decade, who's also a member of our firm, uh, and joining Joel and myself, we have Timothy Sachet, more often known as TJ, uh, who's also been with us about a decade. And as I was just joking with them while preparing for the call, that between the three of us, we have almost over a half a century of work experience in immigration law that we can hopefully uh, share with you today. So obviously last week we decided to wait because we were hoping we would have some update on who might be the next president of the United States. And again, focusing from a purely U.S. immigration law point of view and irrespective of your party affiliation, uh, whether you're an H-1B employer, L-1 employer, processing green cards, etc., or an employee going through the process, we are hopeful that the new administration, the Biden-Harris administration, will uh, be slightly more favorable uh, towards policies and regulations. As most of you know, uh, just last month in October, the Trump administration basically took a whole bunch of steps to rush through several significant regulations, including a particularly onerous Department of Labor rule that many of you are aware of, which bypassed traditional rulemaking and went into effect on October 8th of 2020. Uh, besides that DOL rule that the three of us will discuss, we will also be discussing today the, a couple of the interim final rules one of which aims to redefine the term specialty occupation for H-1B petitions, another one that will clamp down on H-1B workers placed at third-party locations. They're going after third-party consulting companies, as we know. And, of course, the last rule is the proposed rule to transform the H-1B lottery process essentially into a bidding war for the person who's paid the highest salary instead of just being a lottery and I know this year in 2020 was the first year they did the pre-registration lottery, which itself was, uh, was a sort of an, uh, an experiment, if you will. So with that introduction, now that we believe that Biden and Harris are the next, the president and vice president, respectively, um, there's a questions and concerns on what will happen and whether Biden will immediately be able to overturn any of these regulations or what the process is and whether this will suddenly change because it's not going to happen overnight. It's a slow process and we're going to try to kind of analyze to explain that to you. So I'm going to invite you, Joel, to speak briefly about what are the different things that could occur uh, based on what's just happened with the elections. Joel? 
Yeah, so the Department of Labor rule, that's the rule that's already in effect, um, that's, that's hiked up the, the wages just dramatically. Um, that, uh, that rule um, and the, the rule related to specialty occupation, which is supposed to go into effect in December, unless a court intervenes, they will be in effect um, as of the date that uh, the Trump administration, that, that, that Donald Trump leaves office. And um, upon Biden being um, inaugurated, it's not that he can necessarily immediately that particular day end the rules. Um, he may potentially have to um, go through the rulemaking process, process to undo them. That's um, assuming, though, that a court doesn't block one or both of those rules. And there is pretty good reason to, be to believe that a court may block the DLL rule, may block the other um, H-1B rule, um, but it, it may be temporary and it could potentially be reversed on appeal. It's very hard to say, but there's a number of, of reasons, legally speaking, why both of those rules are suspect. The last rule is a proposed rule. At this point, it's unclear whether the aim is to try to rush, rush, rush it through to get it implemented before uh, Trump leaves office, and that would be a very short window. Um, but given everything else we've seen, it, it wouldn't be that surprising if they tried that, um, which and doing that would potentially make that rule. Uh, this is the rule re regarding how they would change how the H-1B um, lottery process is conducted, meaning that if you're paying at a higher wage generally, and we'll go into more details, paying at a higher wage, you have a higher chance of being selected. Um, that particular rule, it, it, it is going through the formal rulemaking process, but if they try to rush it too much and get it implemented before he leaves office, um, that's another reason that uh, a court may block it, in addition to some other potential reasons. So at this point, I think we have to go with the assumption that these rules are going to be in place for at least some period of time, um, and we will hope that, that uh, President-elect Biden um, kind of follows through with his commitments to undo a lot of these really onerous uh, immigration policies that have been implemented in, in recent months and, and even before this. Um, so, wonderful. TJ, do you want... Yeah, go ahead. Thank you so much, Joe. We appreciate that nice tutorial explanation of how the system works. And so I think there was even a New York Times article about how it's not going to be easy for the Biden administration to turn the clock back on all of these uh, anti-immigration employer and employee related provisions and it could take months and sometimes even years for it to be completely set aside. So that is part of the reason that we thought was important to discuss some of these latest uh, changes that have just occurred. So the first rule that we are going to delve into in some detail is of course the Department of Labor rule which we all know was like we talked about went into effect on October 8th of 2020. Uh, it was unveiled as an interim final rule on October 6th. So you had all of one day, October 7th, to rush and file a whole bunch of LCAs. Uh, I know the title itself is a little scary because it affects both H1s and green card holders. So I am going to invite you, TJ, to talk a little bit about, um, about this, the, the, the DOL rule. And of course, also, I'm sure many of you are aware there are three different lawsuits that have been filed against this by the American Immigration Lawyers Association here in Washington, D.C. area. The second one, the American Immigration Lawyers. The uh, second one was the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which was done, I believe, in uh, 
California because they wanted to look at it from the Ninth Circuit point of view, and then the IT Serve Alliance and a whole host of IT technology companies that filed it from New Jersey. So they were looking at three different jurisdictions. So hopefully they'll be stopped, but in the interim, till it's a judge actually puts a hold on it, it's the law right now, whether it's for H1s or green card holders. So TJ, the floor is yours. Sure, thanks, Sheila. So I, I, you know, as Sheila said, for the DOL rule, we really had a day. It's already in effect. They they gave us one day to to make you know to to look into it, and then it went into effect. So we really do, and we already have been proceeding as though you know this new DOL rule is in effect, and it really has impacted you know a lot of a lot of H-1B employers and employees. I mean, it's 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 relatively straightforward rule, and it pretty much just serves to realign the the wage levels and what is required to be paid to an H-1B worker. For instance, you know, the, the day before the rule was finalized, I, um, you know, looked at some of the wage data for, uh, you know, a software developer in our area around our office, and then I saved that, and the next day I went to compare it to what the wage was. The level one wage had risen by about $40,000 overnight. This is for an entry-level position. So the rule really does, you know, serve to realign the wage levels and make it much more you know, much more costly to, to hire H-1B workers. Um, so, the, you know, the first thing that you really need to look at is, is the, the, you know, how you determine the wage level and how the, the prevailing wage is um, determined, right? So you look at several factors, including the occupational classification that is chosen for the labor condition application, the location where the person will be working. For instance, if you're working in North Dakota, you're going to pay a lot less than if you're working in, in downtown New York. Um, and also the job requirements that require, you know, a bachelor's degree in three years of experience or a bachelor's degree in five years of experience. And so an entry-level position is, is generally classified as a wage level one position based on education, experience, other factors such as supervisory duties, special skills needed, things like that. Um, and it can increase up to a wage level four position. So you have wage levels one, two, three, and four. And what we really did have seen is each wage level has increased significantly. So what was once a wage level one salary, or I'm sorry, like a wage level three salary, is now like that entry-level salary. So it really has increased these wages significantly. Thank you, TJ. Sure, employers are already dealing with it, like you said, in the H-1 context immediately, but also in the green card, in the PERM context for right. finding the final prevailing wage determinations when filing green cards. And the current rule, but just by way of background, actually, has been in effect since 2005, so for about 15 years, over 15 years, with wage levels one through four, which have been set at approximately the 17th percentile, the 34th percentile, the 50th percentile, which is wage level three. So 17 is wage level one, 13 was wage level two, 50 wage level three, and 67th percentile of the wage distribution um, for the occupation in the area where the individual will be working, the new rule that became effective uh, just about a month ago from the Department of Labor dramatically shifts these percentiles to namely make it the starting, the first level is 45th percentile, second level is 62nd percentile, third is 78th percentile, and the last, the fourth one, instead of being the 67th, is now the 95th percentile. So like TJ just explained, I mean, think about it. Before wage level two was at the 67th percentile, um, the wage level four was at 67th percentile, and now it's two is at 62nd. So you're talking dramatic, huge, huge increase in people's base salaries. 
Um, and so in short, the required wage for virtually all H1 petitions and permanent resident perm green card positions, along with E3s and uh, E3s, which are for Australian citizens and H1B1s for Chile and Singapore uh, citizens or nationals, has literally shot up pretty much overnight. And even many of the entry-level positions now have prevailing wages as set by the Department of Labor that, as as, uh, TJ just explained, literally by tens of thousands of dollars in one, one day. And does this apply, by the way, Joel, to existing LCAs as well? No. If you had an LCA that was uh, that had been submitted prior to this rule um, coming out, you you can still use that. If you had an LCA already certified, certainly you could still use that. Um, anything new that you're filing, if it's for a, a brand new H-1B employee, an extension, an amendment, um, however, you are going to be bound by those these new rules. Um, now, one option, and we, we've we've gotten this question quite a few times. One option people have is, well, you know, I, I'm, you're getting the salary. It is a ridiculously high salary that you know potentially no employer would realistically pay a let's say entry level employee in this particular position. Well, what do you do? And you can't find anyone else. Well, um, one of the options that you've always had is to use an alternate uh, alternative wage survey. Um, so rather than going with the wages provided by the DOL, you can certify an LCA based on a wage survey taken by a third-party entity so long as it meets certain requirements. Um, this has always been possible, but even before this new rule, uh, the USCIS would frequently have questioned or uh, questioned their use. They would issue requests for evidence, um, and they would be kind of skeptical of using these alternate, alternative wage surveys. Um, it's too soon yet uh, for us to be able to know how they're going to um, view alternative wage surveys now. Um, Because before, they weren't used quite as often, but they were used. Now, I think a lot of employers are investigating them. Um, We we have and been been working with employers on that as well. Um, So we're going to have to kind of wait and see. Um, and again, before earlier on, I mentioned that these are going to be challenged in court. Of all the, the uh, rules that were passed in the last month or month and a half um, or, or that are in the process of being passed. Um, this one appears to be the most suspect. They all have a, a, a reasonable chance of being blocked. This one, I would be, I would be surprised if it is not at least temporarily blocked um, by at least one or more courts. So we, we'll see again, no guarantees, but there's a lot of reason to believe that this is not going to be uh, upheld by, by courts, at least in the short term. And can Wonderful. I just, you know, Thank you. Yes, please go ahead, TJ. Yeah. Sure, I just want to add something real quick. Is if this rule is not blocked, right, and if it goes into effect, and we talked about, you know, the Biden administration couldn't just come in day one and the rule would, rule would go away. But one thing that they could do is, without going through the regulatory notice and comment process, is accept these alternate wage surveys. Instead of having mm-hmm. USCIS question them and issue RFEs, they could accept them, and that would, you know, provide some temporary relief until the rule could be undone um, properly. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, and a lot of employers that I've been doing consultations with were actually unaware that they could use this because they were like, oh, my God, what, what do I do? And so we have different strategies depending on the situation and the employer. If there's an amendment being filed because of a change of job duties, it's, then you may not, you could still potentially use the, uh, if, if it's minor, but then if it's minor, you don't need an amendment. But obviously, if it's a change of work location and it wasn't one of the two locations mentioned on the original LCA, now you have the potential risk of having to get this new wage. 
So if there are no other comments from uh, questions or comments from either one of you, we could now move on to the next interim final rule that we want to discuss that is currently uh, has already been um, uh, you know, discussed, but it's now slated to go into effect on December 7th of 2020, which is less than a month from today. And it's basically titled as Strengthening the H-1B Non-Immigrant Visa Classification Program, uh, implying that the previous ones were not very strong, I guess. And so I'm going to invite you, TJ, to share a little bit of the background uh, on this rule and what it means. Sure. So, I, you know, I think lots of our, our listeners are aware of the 2018 memo that the Trump administration put out on contracts and itineraries. And one, you know, one of the main things that did was it pretty much when, you're, when your employee is, H-1B employee is at a third-party site, you had to submit the contract and the applicable statement of work, work order, or whatnot. Whereas before, you could just get a, you know, a letter from the, from the client or, or some secondary evidence confirming the work was available, and that was enough. But this memo pretty much said uh, contracts are required and itineraries are required. Um, so there was a, a lawsuit on this memo, and USCIS was forced to rescind it, as well as the, their 2010 memo on employee-employee relationships, which is what, what started the whole, you know, you've got to provide all this additional evidence when the employee is, is placed at a third-party site. Um, so they had to rescind them both. So the last couple months we've been working with, you really don't need to submit much, if any, documentation to establish an employee-employer relationship in the H-1B process. So the new rule, though, kind of put these memos into the law, put these memos into the regulation. And the first thing it does is it, this goes even beyond what was in the memos, is it redefines the term specialty occupation um, through a, a new definition. And it's just, they just tweak the words, but it has a huge impact. Now, some of the, the things they've done is we've seen them in practice do this frequently, right? So, you know, they're saying in, in the new regulation that, that if you require a degree in a general field, right, so for a specialty occupation, you need to show that the position requires a degree in a specific field of study. So if, if your position requires a degree in a general field, such as engineering or just a general liberal arts degree or a business degree without any further specialization, you know, like engine, you know, a computer engineering or something like that, they're going to say this does not meet the definition of a specialty occupation. And they've been doing this forever, so we've been trying to, we've for a long time have tried to stay away from saying a job requires a degree in, you know, business or, or just engineering, whereas that used to be fine. That's been, you know, for a while now. So I don't see that being a huge change once these regulations come into effect. And similarly, when you list multiple degrees in multiple fields of study as the minimum requirement for a job, um, that's going to tend to indicate that it's not a specialty occupation. So what you need to do if you do do that is establish how each field of study specifically provides the body of highly specialized knowledge that is directly related to the duties of the job. So one example they give is if you say a position for a chemistry teacher requires a degree in education, or chemistry, well, that may work, right? Because education and chemistry are different fields, but you can show how the body of specialized knowledge you would learn in each of those fields would allow you to become a, you know, a chemistry teacher. Um, so where a, a position may, may 
allow a broad range of de degrees, um, they must, each degree must be directly related to the position. Um, so, you know, kind of like I alluded to before, instead of, you know, demonstrating an additional thing, instead of demonstrating that a bachelor's degree is normally, commonly, or usually required, which is the, what the regulations say now, you're going to have to establish that the, you know, that the job um, requires, always requires a bachelor's degree in a specific field of study. So there are four ways that you can do this, and you can show that the, the re, you know, it always re, the, the requirement for the occupation as a whole always requires a bachelor's degree. So think about at least a bachelor's degree, right? So think about attorneys. To be an attorney, you must, no matter what, have at least a bachelor's degree in a specific field, or a doctor, right? Um, you can also show that the occupational requirement within the industry always requires a degree. Um, you can show that the actual petitioner's requirement is a degree in a specific field. Um, or you can just show that the position is so specialized, complex, or unique that it's, you know, that the degree is required for this field. So that's the one big difference to this regulation is that it, it changed normally or commonly with always. And I see, we don't know how they're going to start adjudicating these, but I see that being the, the biggest difficulty going forward based on these new rules. Thank you, TJ. So the other areas that they've done is obviously adding the definitions for worksite and third-party worksites. Remember, we just referred to it. So now USCIS will define worksite similar to the Department of Labor definition to mean place of employment as the physical location where the work is actually performed by the H-1B non-immigrant. So because before we weren't clear what did they mean, so it, it, for example, a worksite will not include any location that would not be considered to be a worksite for the LCA purposes. And before we should put, for example, the headquarters of the company as a backup location, they're saying, uh-uh, it has where the work is actually performed. Second, the USCIS will define third-party worksite as a worksite other than where the beneficiary's residence in the United States that is not owned or leased and not operated by the petitioner, which is interesting. So if the uh, beneficiary has a residence which, is, which they own or lease in that area, maybe then that, that's going to solve the problem of third-party worksite but let's say most of them have temporary and they don't want to up, up and then move, relocate their families because kids are in school and life is happening and the spouse has a job, et cetera, uh, on her or his own H-1B or H-4EAD, et cetera. They are now saying that that's how they're defining it. And so revising the definition also of the United States employer to mean a person, firm, corporation, contractor, or other association or organization in the United States, which among other things, engages a person to work within the United States and has an employer-employee relationship with respect to employees under that particular regulation as indicated by the fact that the employer may hire, pay, fire, supervise, or otherwise control the work of any such employee. So again, They've replaced the word contractor with company to clarify that contractors are not automatically considered as employers for H-1B purposes. Um, second, that the employer is required, must engage 
the beneficiary to work within the United States and have a bona fide non-speculative job offer for the beneficiary, which again, I thought that that was the whole thing that was thrown out under the litigation, the IT serve lawsuit. But again, they're coming trying to put this back. And this rule will make it clear that a petitioner must have non-speculative employment for the beneficiary at the time of filing the petition, which is definitely more challenging because it doesn't even make sense if you're filing it six months before the start date, um, especially if, you're, if it's a lottery cap subject H1 petition, it would make it 10 times more difficult and expands the definition of employer-employee relationship based on the USCIS interpretation of the existing common law, which was the, remember the 2010 Newfeld memo? Well, they're trying to go back to that, which they, again, was overturned by the court uh, in that lawsuit. Specifically, it lists non-exhaustive factors to be considered in the totality of the circumstances in cases where the beneficiary does not possess an ownership interest in the petitioning organization or entity and um, basically provides additional factors to take into consideration where the employee or beneficiary possesses an ownership interest with the, you know, in the petitioning or in the H-1B employer slash petitioning organization. And final point that I'm going to make before I'm going to have Joe continue is requiring corroborating evidence of work in a specialty occupation, na- namely that the employer, the H-1B employer or petitioner, must establish at the time of filing that it has actual work in a specialty occupation available for the beneficiary as of the start date of the validity of the petition as requested on the petition and any type of just simple uncorroborated statements by the employer saying, yeah, this is what I intend to do, are going to be insufficient to establish that the H-1 employer will have and maintains an employer-employee relationship while the beneficiary works at the third-party work site or second, where the beneficiary is placed at one or more third-party work sites, the employer must submit evidence, actual evidence, such as a contract, a work order, or other similar evidence. They're even allowing detailed letter from an authorized official at the third-party work site to establish that the beneficiary will perform services in a specialty occupation at the third-party work site, and that the employee, the H-1 employer, petitioner will have an employer-employee relationship with the beneficiary. And finally, that the documents submitted should demonstrate that the, the requirements for the position that is really explaining, uh, presenting the evidence um, in terms of meeting the regulations. Uh, and again, they've said that they have given us time to provide comments, but who knows? Because if they're going to, it's going to become effective uh, almost immediately within the 60-day time frame. How are they going to analyze and review the comments and take them into account in modifying or changing regulations, which is the whole reason why you have the APA rulemaking process. So with that, Joel, I'm going to go to you because I know I think they want to talk about third-party placement petitions to limit time limits, et cetera. Yeah, so with third-party placement petitions, um, what we have seen, where we had seen prior to um, that the, the lawsuit was that um, in recent years, the USCIS would limit um, approvals through the end dates on 
the documents you provided. So if you had a contract for two years and you filed an H-1B for a three-year extension, they would limit the approval to two years. Well, so first of all, what they're doing is if you are placing your employee at a third-party work site, the maximum you can get, no matter how long the contract is for, the maximum that you can get it approved for is for one year. Um, and it could be less than that because if you have a contract for six months and you ask for even the, the, the one year that, that otherwise can give, they're likely going to, to limit the approval to six months. Um, now, one thing they did, one you know, small tidbit, uh, small positive thing they're doing is that when they limit the expiration date, they will provide in writing an explanation for why they did that. I, I, I think it's pretty obvious. I think we all know when they limit it where they got that information from, but now they will be putting that in writing. Um, the new rule also does clarify that itineraries are, are not required for H-1B petitions in general. Um, so that that is nice, um, but you know, that's kind of another small tidbit there. Um, we also, there's also a, a, a significant um, a provision in there related to site visits. So we have been seeing site visits for a number of years. That's nothing new. But this goes and, and ramps up the site visits and clarifies and expands. So what the new regulation will do is allow, it clarifies that USCIS officers, the, the people they send out for site visits, can visit not only the headquarters and not only the third-party client location, but any of your offices, your branch offices. They can interview uh, your personnel. They, they have very wide discretion to go and look into the petition to verify the details of the petition, um, to look at all of your different locations, to review the documents. And um, this is kind of a problem because we know that, if, especially if you go to a third-party client site, the third-party client may have, may not want to let the officer in. They may not want to answer any questions. They may not want to cooperate because they've hired a contracting company. They may barely know that there are immigrants working uh, for this contracting company, and they don't want to be involved. We've, we've all seen that come up time and time and time again. But now under this regulation, if the third-party client refuses to cooperate, refuses to let the officer go in and inspect, that alone can be a reason for a denial or a, revo or a revocation, um, not being able to get them to cooperate. So again, I, this is clearly has been done on purpose. Um, they know a lot of third-party clients aren't going to cooperate, and I, I think that's very much what their hope is. So moving right along, the last rule that we will discuss is, of course, the proposed rule entitled Modification of Registration Requirement for Petitioners Seeking to File CAP Subject Petitions, uh, basically CAP Subject H1 Petitions. So I'm going to invite you, TJ, um, to talk a little bit about a little bit about the background because that's all that's your focus of your work, of course, is the non-immigrant departments with a focus on H1 petitions, and I figured you would be the most apt and able to talk a little bit more about the background and, and where this is going. Sure, sure. So, so as, as a lot of you probably know, um, the H-1B lottery has been split into essentially two lotteries. One lottery for people with a qualifying U.S. master's degree, and then another one for everyone else. Um, and then those who aren't, you know, the master's degree people kind of get two bites of the apple. Um, and even with the, the new registration system that, that went into place during last you know, fiscal year's lottery season, um, the, the lottery process hasn't been, you know, uh, fundamentally altered. Um, and then under this new proposed rule, there would still be a master's cap 
and a regular cap, just like normal. Um, but the, the process and the selection process wouldn't really be random. You know, if this rule is actually finalized, H-1B registrations would be ranked based on the highest wage level um, the offered salary would meet for the relevant occupational classification, or in other words, the relevant SOC code. And this doesn't mean that the H-1B registrations will be ranked based on all the proposed salary, right? So you can't just say, okay, I'm going to get a hundred, you know, a million dollars, so therefore I'm probably going to be picked number one. Now, it doesn't really work that way. Rather, their way, it's going to, you know, the proposal, it's going to be ranked based on the potential wage level. So to illustrate, let's say you propose to hire a pharmacist in New York City um, with a proposed wage of, you know, let's say $150,000. So the highest wage that that could equal for New York City, the highest wage level, would be a wage level two. However, that same position in, you know, let's say a rural part of Alabama may actually equate, that same salary may equate to a wage level four in that area in Alabama. So the registration submitted for the pharmacist in Alabama would actually be ranked higher than that for the person, you know, the pharmacist in New York City, and they would have a higher chance of being selected based on this proposed role. Ah, okay. Uh, and so in practice, obviously, this would not only change how registrations are selected, but also how they are being submitted. So right now, in order to submit a registration, the employer, as you know, must, must identify the candidate, the H-1B employee slash candidate in the registration, and confirm that the employer has the job available for that individual. But there are no details about the offered job that have to be provided during the registration process. At least that was how it was in 2020. But now, under this proposed rule, the employer would have to know where the individual will be working and the SOC that would be used if the registration is selected in order to ascertain what the late wage level would be. So, and in this case, if the employer is using an alternate wage survey, the USCIS would rank that registration in the same category as an OES wage level one. And Joel, how would they then rank the other registrations, et cetera? Well, so the way it's currently set up, the way they would rank it is pretty simple. If you have um, enough people with, let's say, let's, uh, hypothetically, enough people with wage level four positions to meet the lottery, then basically, or, or more than that, um, they would have a lottery of that. And if you did not have a wage level four, it appears that you would be out of luck. Now, that's kind of the initial way it's proposed. Um, but because this is a proposed rule, it, it, they're not presenting this as this is definitely the way it's finally going to be. Instead, they actually seek out comments specifically about maybe taking this idea and instead of having it that kind of cut and dry, have it uh, more of a traditional lottery system, but having it set up so that, so for instance, if you have a a position at a wage level four and a position at a wage level one, it's, uh, it's not necessarily that assuming you have enough wage level fours or fours, threes, and twos that the ones cannot be selected, but the higher the wage level, the higher the chance of being selected. So let's you know, say hypothetically, um, you get four 
entries with a wage level four versus one entry for, with a wage level one. That, that may be one way that they would consider doing it. Um, and uh, when, when we first looked at this, this is kind of sort of, if you follow the NBA, they have a lottery system, not exactly like this, but where, where the worst team doesn't automatically get the, the number one draft pick. Well, in the immigration context, the, the lowest salary doesn't automatically not get uh, selected. Um, but it would certainly have a significantly lower chance. But again, it, it's not clear which way they're actually going to go, whether they're going to go with that option or go with the option of kind of how they initially set it up, which is if, if there are enough people with wage level fours, um, we're, we'll have a lottery of just wage level fours. If not, you'll go to what wage level threes and then, you know, on down the line. So basically, if they go that route, it would make it, Almost, you almost would never get wage level one selected, and most entry-level positions for these kids, they just graduated with a degree in college, you're not typically going to give them a wage level two or wage level three position because they're, they are entry-levels almost by definition. Um, so again, this is, I, I think this is really going to harm not only the H-1B program, but also the F-1 program, because I think the students are going to go elsewhere. The high, you know, the STEM students, if they know they're not never there, it's going to be almost impossible for them to get a job here. Um, exactly. Again, yeah. So this is a proposed rule, unlike the other ones, which have been finalized. This is a proposed rule, very common for administrations, especially ones that thought, hey, maybe we're not going to win this election. Let's start putting these rules through to try to make as many changes as we can. Um, but they waited pretty late in the game to do this. So this rule may not have enough time to get through before, um, before President-elect Biden takes over and it's inaugurated. Um, and if, again, as I mentioned earlier, if they try to rush it through, which they might be doing, it's going to make it um, that much more suspect in court. Exactly. So thank you for that explanation and uh, overview as well, Joel. Uh, so I think as Joel correctly pointed out, I figured there were two main areas. First of all, I think somewhere the USCIS itself recognized that uh, this particular rule is actually a contradiction and a violation of what is in the actual law, the statute itself, uh, when it was passed. Um, you know, Immigration Act of 1990, when they changed the H-1B to include specialty occupation and multitudes of regulations. And remember, a regulation, the, the administration or the executive branch obviously does not make laws, like Rule 101, right? In law school, you don't make laws, uh, but you are only allowed to interpret the laws. And so when the executive's interpretation of the law, uh, the, the law is a complete 180 degree completely different than what was intended by the legislators, the risk of it being overturned is high. And as Joel also alluded to, we have the universities raising, you know, getting really upset because they are extremely concerned that all their fresh graduates from their bachelor's and master's degrees programs who need the one-year F1 OPT, the optional practical training or the additional two years of STEM optional practical training, all of those may pretty much have no more incentive to, than the employers to file the H-1 petitions for them to stay back, which is dramatically. Already, I believe, H-1, the universities have lost about 15% of their student workforce, international students, and international students pay full freight, full tuition, which is billions of dollars coming into America across the United States at every possible university across the country. So this is going to have a, a ripple effect 
um, on the economy and instead of creating new jobs and helping America and making America great, really is actually helping to make it much worse, less competitive and going to lose uh, and not create more jobs, but actually result in losing more jobs and impacting the economy negatively. So all of us know that now Biden is likely to then uh, take the oath of office on January 20th. So as I said, in just about two months, what could change, what could happen, how long will anything change? So for now, these rules are in effect. Um, obviously, as they're changing, we will continue to share updates with you on Muthi.com, on the website, in our Muthi forum, in our weekly articles, in our chat, and in these monthly teleconferences that we do for all of you as employers or HR personnel uh, trying to understand complex, ever-changing immigration rules. So I hope you got a quick overview of what's going on. And on behalf of Joel Yanovich, TJ, myself, Sheila Muthi, and our entire Muthi Law Firm team, we thank you for joining us today. And we look forward to continuing to educate, enlighten, and empower you with the latest immigration-related information and knowledge so that we can constantly figure out how to win in this difficult game with its ever-changing rules. Stay safe. Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours, and we look forward to connecting with you next month. Bye now. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services, and more at www.murthy.com.